Let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. Hey, quick disclosure. Um, I have a, uh, a consummate furrowed brow. So I made a note, I made a note in my notes to smile because I will hyper-focus on something or be listening and my brow gets, as I think through. It, when I was in high school, people used to stop me in the hallway and say like, dude, are you, are, are you going to fight somebody? Like, what's going on? I'm like, no, it's my best day ever actually, yeah. So anyway, full disclosure, I made a note to smile, but if I don't, I am not mad. I am not mad at you. I mean, so anyway, let's do this. Let's pray, and we're going to jump into our scripture. Our scripture is, we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 70, 71, uh, but we'll pray. Um, my name is Josh. I'm the student ministries pastor here. It is an absolute privilege to be standing here with you today. So here we go. We're going to pray, we're going to read John, and then we're going to see what we can get out of it. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, thank you for the revelation of Jesus through scripture. Thank you for revealing your heart for humanity. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would help us to discover even parts of what the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired these words to be written down. Lord, I pray that as we, um, as we just come face to face with the truth of Scripture, that, Lord, it would sink into our hearts, that it would change hearts, and that you would use it to conform us more to the image of your Son. Lord, would you, by your grace, um, allow us to see you in the Scripture, um, and that in doing so, uh, not a single person in this room would leave unchanged, having encountered you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, <clears throat> we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. And we're going to read through that, and then I've got a couple other uh, verses that will bounce around, but primarily, primarily John 6, 60-71. I'm reading through the ESV, or reading from the ESV. So here we go. Chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Um, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If the Spirit who gives, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the, or, sorry, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. All right, so a couple things just pop out to me in this scripture. Um, and I would say that this sermon, this message, this talk, isn't going to be like a comprehensive academic study of John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Rather, uh, more of a reflection of three observations as I was reading this passage, praying through it, three observations that really began to pop off the page to me that I feel compelled to share with you and what I think is really a, like life-changing elements in our walk with Jesus. So three observations from this text, and then within those observations, a couple questions that start to come up that are um, well, just beneficial, worthwhile to answer. So here we go. Observation number one. Then, sorry, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, drop down to verse 60. After this, many of his disciples turned and no longer walked with him. First observation from this text that I would love to just kind of unpack with you just a little bit is, you know, just taking it at face value. Some of, some of Jesus' sayings, much of what the Bible contains is a hard saying. So much of the truth that we read in Scripture begins to conflict with and come into opposition with, with what we've believed for years apart from God, right? Um, the, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah would say it this way when he's confronted with this and he's wrestling with God about the, the great and wonderful things of the universe, the creation, when he's wrestling with God because of his profound proclamation and the deep truth in which God speaks to his people, the prophet Isaiah just said, oh my goodness, like your ways are so much higher than my ways, your thoughts so much higher than my thoughts. Like, how do I even, right? And so there's this truth and an observation from this text that I see here, and it's just that some of Jesus' sayings they're hard. And why is that relevant to us? Why is that relevant to us? Well, even, even in coming to Jesus, when we see the life of Jesus, he's, we see Jesus beginning his, his uh, ministry and his invitation to join him, right? We see this invitation to life, to eternal life. You know, we see in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. This is my husband. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see him being led into the wilderness to be tempted, but no fault was found, no sin. He walked away um, perfect. And then goes and begins his, um, begins his earthly ministry saying this, saying this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And within that is this nugget, right? Within that. So repent. So even coming to Jesus and believing Jesus for who he is, there is this need to submit our beliefs to the world uh, regarding the world around us, the way the kingdom operates. So there's a need to not just to submit to this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that in putting our faith and our trust in him, we now have access to God the Father, that we now have access to this eternal life, but there's also a need to believe what he taught is true 
about the kingdom of God and about the fallen world that we live in. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That word repent would be metanoia, or can also be trans- translated repent. And yes, it's turn away from your sin. Yes, it's cha- like change the things that you're doing that are contrary to God's ways. Yes, it's all of those things, but it also is very much change and expand the way you think. Paul would say, don't be conformed to this world, but renew your mind. But Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's this reality that the things he teaches are so contrary to our culture that when we're steeped in culture, we're going to come up against the truth of God's word or the truth, the deception of what culture would try to impose, right? There's this reality that when we come up against the truth of God's word, that we come face to face with our own flesh, our own sinfulness, our own depravity. We come up against um, what you would say are our fleshly desires, but we come up against that. It comes into conflict to what God preaches and teaches. So there's a reality that God's word, that Jesus' words, they They conflict with culture. There's a reality that God's word, that they conflict with our flesh. It wars with the members in our body, is what Paul would say. There's a reality that that God's word, that Jesus' words, which are truth, which are eternal life, it's a reality that his word will war against the religious nature or our propensity for religion or just doing. I got to do more for this. There's just a reality that it's going to come up against those things. So Jesus, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Coming to Jesus, the belief and the repentance that go hand in hand in walking with Jesus, but changing the way we think, setting aside our preconceived notions of who God is and what he should be doing for us, putting aside our preconceived notions of um, the kingdom of God, or the way the world works, right? So repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm going to change and expand the way I think. There's this necessity to submit our intellect, to submit our beliefs, to submit all of these presuppositions to the truth of God's word. Uh, the psalmist put it this way, and I, I remember years ago when I, when I first came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I really wrestled with some of the, uh, some of the hard truth some of the hard truth that I saw in Scripture that was so contradictory to the belief that I held in this world or for this world, right? And I was was wrestling with it. I was was fighting through it. And then one of the gentlemen that was discipling me, he took me to Psalm 131, and I began to see the heart of someone whose intellect, whose desires, whose will is submitted to that of Jesus. And he says this in Psalm 131. He says, Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. It's this heart posture towards God. It's exactly like I said with the with with the prophet Isaiah, of just acknowledging his supremacy, his superiority, his 
his greatness in light of our minutia. So observation one, some of what Jesus teaches, some of what we see in Scripture, these sayings are hard. But he never promises easy, right? Second thing, as we're going through uh, the Gospel of John, verse, or chapter 6, um, we see this. Second observation. Um, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, note verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, and then again in verse uh, 54, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Second observation. First observation, some of Jesus' sayings are hard. And there is a call when we walk to Jesus, a necessity to submit our views, our ideas, our truth um, to what he calls truth. Second, based on these scriptures, this observation that nothing is hidden from God. This is an, an amazing, an amazing revelation of who God is, but you know, even the, even the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. So nothing is hidden from God, he would say. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, For the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit um, of, the, of the joint and the marrow. And then check this out. He goes on and he says, And, right, discerning the thoughts and the attentions, or sorry, intentions of the heart. Verse 13 says, And no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Again, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So observation one, some of Jesus' sayings are just simply hard. There's this requirement when we walk with Jesus to submit to him and his teaching. Number two, there is nothing, hid- nothing hidden from God. We see in this passage, we see the truth that Jesus knew why the multitudes were following him. He was able to discern their hearts, able to discern their motives, able to discern um, their, their agenda, really. And we also see the deepest, we see, we also see that he sees, right, the deepest secrets of those that by all, by all appearances would be devoted followers, right? Speaking of Judas, right? Like we see that he sees, like the, we see that he sees the secrets of the heart of those that even would appear to be the most committed. So Jesus sees um, nothing is hidden from him. I love the way in just this idea of, you know, the Lord knows, the Lord sees. I love the way that Psalm 139 just unpacks this, just um, this, this lofty, 
vision of God's omniscience, of his knowing, of his discerning of hearts. You know, even thinking about the way, oh, here we go. So read a few of these verses of Psalm 139. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar off. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. And I lay, down, uh, I lay, your, hand upon, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, and for darkness is light with you. For darkness is as light with you. Sorry. The psalmist goes on and talks about how God has formed his inward parts, that he's been knit together. He says, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Says in 17 of 139, How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You know, in confronting this just profound idea of God knowing, right? Discerning hearts, discerning motives, knowing the deepest parts of our being, every fiber of who we are. So yeah, first observation is some of the things of God are hard. Second is that God sees it all. He knows all. He discerns the heart. He discerns the motive. And that's not just for the masses, right? It's for us. It blows me away to think that a God could know us so intimately, literally knowing the deepest and the darkest and the things, the grimiest, grungiest, nastiest recesses of my heart, and yet he, right, would still offer me eternal life. That he would still present himself as the bread of life. That he would offer up his body and his blood on my behalf. Wow, those thoughts are too high for me. I cannot attain it. So first observation is that God, you know, Uh, Some of what Jesus says is hard. There are hard things in Scripture that we have to really labor and fight to to line up. We have to to labor in the Word. Nothing is hidden from God. He is a discerner of hearts. He knows all. And still, right? You are fully known. You are fully known and you are fully loved, right? Right? Just it's a sidebar, just how silly it is, right? Think about, think about Judas and how he was able to put up a front that fooled everybody, okay? But how silly it is to put up a front before God to try to pretend to be something that we are not, right? 
or to be something more than we are. How silly is it to hide these things from God when his greatest desire, um, here, let me show you, when his greatest desire is to get into those places and to conform you more to the image of his son. The psalmist, I think, in, in coming into, um, in, in, in colliding with this idea of God's just great knowledge and this idea that nothing is unknown to him, even the darkest, most secret places, in confronting that great and wonderful knowledge His heart posture before God is absolutely incredible. He would say this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Lord, would you search me, God, because I know. Lord, would you search me? You know, would you show me the things in my heart and my soul that are just holding me back from deeper intimacy with you? That's ultimately the, the psalmist's cry, right? Lord, I am acknowledging my stuff is not together. I'm acknowledging before you it is just silly to hide these things. Lord, I stand before you just painfully aware of these, just, these dark places in my heart, but Lord, would you, would you, would you search me? Would you know me? And just assure me of your love, right? And then lead me as you give me the opportunity now to, to lay these things at your feet, you know, covered by your blood. Third thing, third observation. So first, right? First observation was just how some of Jesus' sayings are hard. And they radically oppose so much of our culture. Some of Jesus' sayings are hard, and they radically oppose our own selfish desires. Some of Jesus' sayings are hard, and they radically oppose our preconceived notions of what religion or what I should be doing for God or what he should be doing for me. Some of Jesus' sayings are hard. Observation number two, nothing is hidden from God. You are fully known and you are fully loved and are only, I think, the only posture before him is that of the psalmist in 139. Search me, Lord. Show me the things that I, show me the things in my heart that are holding me back from a deeper, more intimate walk with you that I would have the opportunity now to lay those at your feet, right? And then thirdly, this observation, sorry, thirdly, this observation, we begin to see or observation number three, right, is that we begin to see like, like three groups kind of form within the context of John 6, 60 through 71. Um, of note, um, small distinction, all three groups are characterized by being his disciples, right? All three groups, whether it was the masses that left because things were too hard, they were characterized by disciples. Judas characterizes the disciple, the one that would betray him. And then the 11 who followed him faithfully are characterized as his disciples. So all three in this passage are being characterized by, uh, as being disciples. And I think it's worth noting that in the context of this scripture, disciple simply means one who follows. One who follows another. You know, Moses had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. There were many rabbis of that day that had disciples. So basically, in the sense that 
someone had something attractive about their life that others wanted to learn from and follow and emulate, right? These people are not distinguished as believers, or in this context, disciple is not necessarily a a believer, but one who's simply um, attracted to Jesus for some reason. So group one of these three, distinguished as being a disciple, there's, there's something of like initial interest there. They're not believers. They are the many. They're the masses, right? Um, and then the, I told you there was like three observations and then a couple of questions that pop up from these observations. And the first one is that the first question that begins to resonate after seeing this group initially interested in following Jesus with such excitement, right, is why? Why would they, why would they leave? How could just a hard saying that, you know, conflicts with some worldview cause you to walk away from the King of Kings, the Lord of glory? And they saw him do a, a massive miracle in feeding 5,000 people with a few fishes, right? Just a moment ago, if we go a few verses back, they're ready to take him by force and make him king. Now, just because they say something that he disagrees with, or if Jesus says something that disagrees with him, that hits him in the heart, they're like, ah, you know what? That's hard. No one can accept that. I'm outie. But why? Why would they leave, right? And so start reading, and I'm, you're like looking at all these commentators and and commentaries, and, you know, we can speculate different things. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, Jesus's, um, Jesus's talk on being the bread of life, in a lot of ways, it really did offend the Jewish, sense of, the Jewish sensibility. In a lot of ways, who Jesus was presenting himself to be really did offend and come in, come, come in conflict with who the Jew would think Jesus is going to be. Like, oh, so you're you're not going to establish your kingdom on earth? Like, you're, you're not here to rescue us from, the, from, the, from Caesar and the, the Romans? Oh, you're, you're not here to establish the Jewish nation as the greatest of all? You know, like. So there was some opposition culturally, I think religiously. I mean, you could imagine Jesus' message to someone who has been taught to keep the law, you know, every dot, every... could be quite offensive. But then we look at verse, uh, we look at verse 63, right? And it says this, and I, and I wonder, you know, why would they leave? And it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And first of all, just sidebar note, I totally underline that verse. It's like, it's so money, right? I try to remind myself of that. The flesh is of no help at all. So it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So ultimately, right, ultimately, why did they leave? Well, in their unbelief, right, they are spiritually dead. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no use at all. There's no profit in the flesh. The flesh can't get us closer to God. The flesh can't help us understand him more. It is the spirit of God, right? So, one way to help me understand this just a little bit better, is like, why did they leave? Like in short, I would say, they left because they were spiritually dead. They left because they were not yet made alive by the spirit of God. They left because dead fish float downstream. 
dead fish float downstream. What do I mean by that? So I got this fish. Yo. Yo. Yo, I got a fish. Times two. Who's going to kiss the fish? Someone over there in the student section. Kiss the fish. Kiss the fish. Okay, never mind. No, don't, don't kiss the fish. Don't, don't, don't kiss the fish. Don't kiss the fish. But here, go to, uh, flip with me, as I brandish my fish, flip with me to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians, okay? I want to just show you. I, I heard a gentleman say one time that, I heard a gentleman say one time, don't be surprised when lost people act lost, right? Meaning, Dead fish float downstream. Meaning, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So a couple things that we see in Ephesians that help us understand this truth just a little bit more. Like, why would they leave? Well, because dead fish float downstream. Imagine for a second, like Ephesians chapter 2 here, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And then it says here that we're following the course of this world. So imagine for a second that we just, we take out the carpet and there's this massive river running right through our sanctuary space, and there's this current that just flows. Now, I have a dead fish, and I've already given you the answer. Dead fish float downstream, right? So we have this dead fish. We have a river running through. If I take my fish and I throw them in, where are they going to go? They have no choice. Dead fish can't swim. Dead fish float downstream. Don't be surprised when lost people act lost. So I look at the masses, and yes, heartbreak, right? But it reveals this truth. Oh, shoot. It reveals this truth, right? It reveals this truth. They left in their spiritual deadness. And that's why that's why Jesus would say it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. If we... I'm going to get there. going to get there. Got it. If we look just a few verses back in chapter 6, we see this where... Like even they, it wasn't that they had not the opportunity to believe, but just that they rejected the belief. They said to him, verse 28 of 6, they said to him, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. It was lack of belief in him whom God has sent, who has the words of eternal life, 
that left them in their spiritual deadness, right? And now they go with the course of this world. They had no choice. Dead fish float downstream. Now imagine for a second that my fish are miraculously alive, right? Not this one. But imagine for a second that my fish is miraculously alive, and we go back to our same analogy, right? We go back to our same analogy. Because I think to myself, like, why did they leave? Well, dead fish float downstream. And we see in the scripture that they have rejected the belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's the Spirit that gives life. And they reject the Spirit, they reject life, thus dead fish float downstream. Ephesians telling me that we were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. To be apart from Jesus is to be spiritually dead. Right? But... It says, but in Ephesians chapter 2, this is where it gets so crazy good. And then I get to the disciples and the 11 and like, why did they stay? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 says that the disciples stay because it says in, in verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right? Even though he knew the darkest, deepest sin in our life, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when he made us alive together with Christ, it's by grace that you've been saved, the scripture would say. And so now I have an opposing idea to my dead fish, or not an opposing idea, but an opposing force, if you will, like we've all seen Animal Planet. We've all seen the Discovery Channel. We've all seen the salmon runs on TV and the bears are just feasting on salmon. But what's amazing is an alive fish can swim upstream. I can choose to go counterculture. I think it's a crazy observation that, or just a, a crazy idea to think. Like put yourself in the place of the 11 apostles, Peter and the guys, right, minus Judas. But Judas stays too. That's maybe that, we don't have time to unpack all of that, but... To see the masses, this is everybody. You just fed 5,000 people. There was a really big group there that day. And it was a really big group. The masses, the majority, walked away from Jesus. And yet these guys, rooted and grounded in love, like willing to stand and oppose culture, willing to stand in the truth of who Jesus is. He's not an offense, as these would propose. He is my greatest hope, they would say. So now you have these fish that are made alive, and they have every opportunity. Man, they're just, dude is, hold on, let me get that. This dude is swimming upstream. Why? Because he can. Because live fish can swim against the current. Dead fish, go with the flow. Live fish, man, you could go against it all. By the power of God, by the glory of God. I'm not saying be contentious just for contentious sake. But the gospel, the gospel is offensive. Scripture is full of hard things. This is hard truth, Jesus. But I submit. I submit. I submit to this truth. And I don't fully understand it, but I believe you. I believe you. Although all of culture, all of the river's going that way, all the other fish, all, all of culture is against you right now, Lord. I'm, I'm going against culture. I'm going against my flesh. I am deciding to swim upstream. It's been made alive, right? So a live fish, a live fish has the option to now swim upstream. It's huge. 
It's huge. So why would they leave? They're spiritually dead. Why would they stay? They're spiritually alive. Uh, P- uh, Peter, in speaking for the group, when Jesus, watching the masses leave, saying, guys, are you going to leave too? He answers so poignantly, so right on time. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I get the sense that he had almost considered, like, what are my other options here? I know that I have. I have come up against truth that was so shocking to me in Scripture that I thought, I don't know anymore. I can't get my mind wrapped around this. But Lord, my, my, my eyes are not lofty, or my, my mind lifted up. I'm going to submit. I'm, I'm going to humble myself. before. Who am I to think some little finite being, a created being on this little speck of a planet, right, can outthink or figure out the greatness of God? But like a newborn babe, I'm just, I'm submitting myself to you. I think he considered the options. We have students here. We typically do our our student service at 1030. I think one of the the cries of my heart for you guys, students, but then not to exclude the rest of us because we have a propensity to let our hearts stray in the same things, is where Peter says, look, he says, God, where else, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's like Peter had considered the alternatives. And culture, the world around us, at all, it's, it's presenting plenty of alternatives. Seemingly that lead to the same eternal satisfaction, internal satisfaction that only Jesus can provide. There are counterfeits galore. Well, maybe if I focus less on Jesus, I'll have less resistance and I'll just throw my life into getting money. Maybe fulfillment would be there. Or maybe if I focus less on Jesus and just go with the flow, I could just focus on academia, a few more degrees, I'll be happy. Maybe it's that job. Maybe it's that thing. Maybe it's the accolades on the sports field. I don't know what it is, but we all have a propensity to to lean towards something, to find some kind of significance. But Paul, or sorry, Peter says here, he's like, Lord, there is nowhere else to go. Not only are you the answer, you are the answer. You are the answer. There's nothing else. No religion. No other philosophy. No other pursuit even comes close to all that Jesus is. We were singing it as the, the, nothing is better. There is nothing better than you. Like it's, there's nothing better. Peter rightly exclaiming, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's nothing else. It is you. Like even these words of eternal life, it's hard. But it's you that has the, the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All right. There is no alternatives. You have the words of eternal life. I think within that, right, it's important to remember that yes, he has the words of eternal life. And it's, we don't, we, we come to Jesus, right, based on the truth of the gospel. And There are so many benefits to following after him. Scripture, packed with wisdom 
on how to live a wise life, purposeful and pleasing to God, right? So, so there is benefit to following Jesus, some of which is just understanding that eternity starts right now. Like your eternity began when Jesus made you the moment that little dead fish became a live fish and no longer had to swim downstream but could swim upstream towards the things of God, his eternity began. And in the light of eternity, we begin to find in this life a purpose oh, and an identity and meaning that begins to create an unshakable faith that we see Peter and the 11 display. Nothing compares. No other life pursuit is worthy than you, Jesus. And in that, I find my purpose. I find my meaning. I find my identity. I find where I belong. In John chapter 6, verse 40, he says, For this is the will of God, my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Peter says, Lord, whom shall we go? It is you that has the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I guess kind of in a closing thought, right? Um, you know, Peter makes these um, just profound exclamations of who Jesus is, right? But when it comes down to it, right, um, this morning, this morning is a, a lot less about the masses that walked away. It's a lot less about Judas, who would later betray. And it's a lot less about Peter, or not as much about it is? What am I trying to say here? This morning is about much more than just Peter and the 11 standing with Jesus, standing firm despite culture, despite religion, despite, you know. And it is much more about you. So remember, I mean, wow, we see our takeaways from this this morning. Like Jesus, Jesus is hard. These sayings are hard. And so even now, there's pieces of the gospel, there's pieces of truth that we wrestle with. Are we willing to, like Peter, believe to the point where we're willing to believe? I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are the Holy One of God, and thus I believe you. Even when it contradicts everything I thought was true, I believe you. And I will walk in it even if I don't understand it, but I believe you. That's what this is about. 
Number two, right, we see that nothing is hidden from God. And right now in this room are secret sins. And with that belief comes a need for repentance. And God is calling all of us to that repentance. Are you willing to change and expand the way you think? Are you willing to, like the psalmist, say, Lord, search me and to know me. Show me the things that are holding me back from a deeper walk with you that we might walk in intimacy. Paul says, or uh, Peter, I keep saying Paul. I love Paul, but this is Peter. He says, we believed and we've come to know. It's that posture before God where he's not just talking about Jesus. Yeah, I know him. But Jesus... I know him. There is a possibility, there is a world where you're knowing of Jesus, where you know him to a level and a depth where Ephesians chapter 3, Paul would pray for the church and say, man, I, I'm praying for you. You would know the love of Christ, the depths, the height, the width. The... And he says, in the, in the, oh, here. New, the, new, the New Living Translation is so amazing on this one. And then we're done. He says, I'm praying for you that you may experience the love of Christ and you will be made complete with all the fullness of God and the power that comes from it. There is a level of knowing that begins to... It, it, it leaves knowledge behind and begins to become an experienced knowing walk with Jesus. Like beyond the intellectual, into the knowing of our hearts, just the knowingness of it. And then lastly, right? So, are you willing, right? Are you willing to submit as necessary to the truths of Jesus, to be conformed more to the image? Are you willing to allow God to search out those things of your heart that you might lay them at your feet so that you now, like Peter, are knowing, right? You've believed, and you've believed to the point where I'm just going to believe you. And now you know to the level that you just know that you know that you know that you know. And then this proclamation of that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus leaves little room, no room rather, right, for any other conclusion than you are the Holy One of God. I think from this stage we've heard it, but C.S. Lewis, we hear it around us, but but C.S. Lewis put it so eloquently that it's worth repeating a hundred times. But when you look at the claims of Jesus, that I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the Son of God, I am the Holy One, the Holy One of God, I am the Christ, the Messiah. When you look at his claims, there's only a few logical conclusions that you could possibly make. The first is, that's a crazy dude. He's a crazy man, does not need to be followed. That guy is whack. He's a lunatic. The second is he was a liar, that he knew what he was doing. And he's just leading people astray in mass, right? Like, I, you are a liar, Jesus. I do not believe the words you said. Eesh. It's a scary conclusion. But then the third is that he's Lord. And if he's Lord, then he is worthy to be believed. And if we believe, then we submit to the harder things of Scripture, even when it contradicts our flesh, even when it contradicts culture, even when it contradicts, right? And if he is Lord, 
Let me pray for you guys real quick. We're going to bring the worship team back up and praise Jesus just a little bit more. Um, Lord, thank you for the hardness of some of your sayings, that your truth runs so deep. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to come to that place where um, we just see it as higher and more lifted up than our ways, that we would take our rightful place in submission to you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not yet believed that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if there's anyone that has not yet believed that he is the Son of God who died on our cross, that we might live eternal life forever with you. Lord, would you reveal those truths to them now? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.